Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show is our first proper new episode of 2020. Although, now that I think about it, we recorded this one right before New Year's, so I guess technically the next regular episode will be the first full-on 2020 episode. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you really how you really plan these things. I, I had a similar dilemma back when it was the end of our first year of podcasting and also the end of the first year of us podcasting when it was like New Year's, but not quite the first year of... I, I tend to get into these things sometimes, and I really shouldn't. I should just talk about movies. Today, the movie we're talking about was my biggest, most anticipated movie of 2019. It is the Safdie Brothers Uncut Gem, starring Adam Sandler. I am such a huge fan of their film, Good Time, and so I was really, really, really looking forward to this, and uh, it, it, it met my expectations. I mean, honestly, I'm still kind of unpacking it and like really getting to the bottom of what all I feel about this movie because it's it's a complicated one but uh, I loved it and I had a great conversation with Chris Cranock who joins me on this one to talk about a whole lot of puzzle pieces we got a very big finished puzzle at the end so get ready we got a nice long conversation for you about uncut gems it will not be as anxiety-inducing as the movie. Don't worry. You can just sit back and relax and enjoy it. But uh, I do want to remind you before we jump into that, make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. If you like what you hear on the show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. And of course, follow us on social media at PiecingPod. So let's get into this conversation about the Safety Brothers Uncut Gems. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by the Golden Tiki. Recently named one of the top tiki bars in the United States by the Food Network, and also one of the top 10 best nightlife destinations in Las Vegas by USA Today. They've got great rum, mixed drinks, and of course the Dole Whip. They've got theme nights, DJs, all kinds of fun stuff, including Alan Bud's Oasis, who are two robotic parrots that put on a great show every hour on the hour. So next time you're in Las Vegas, make sure to check out the Golden Tiki on Spring Mountain. All right, back on the show today, we've got Chris Cranock. How's it going, man? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, man. Just <laughs> wrapping up this year, just there's so many movies that they have to just squeeze in at the last minute, and it's just so difficult to cover them all, you know? Yeah, award season. 
award season and just it's uh, why do they have to do this to us man i i feel <laughs> like adam sandler in this movie like rushing from theater to theater trying to see all this shit you know yeah, you should definitely wear fake teeth <laughs> <laughs> so I think that would help. Squint my eyes a little bit. Yeah, right exactly. <laughs> Give me another chance. All right, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, man. So Uncut Gems. Uh, I was super, super, super excited for this movie. As you know, uh, Good Time is one of my favorite movies of this decade. Mm-hmm. I, I love that movie so much. And I I hadn't actually seen any of the Safdie's other work. Um, I'm sure we'll end up talking about it as we get into this conversation. I, I've gone back and uh, watched Heaven Knows What since seeing Uncut Gems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how about you? Were, were you super psyched for this one? Oh, yeah. So I had seen uh, Heaven Knows What, which I think by comparison of Good Time and uh, Uncut Gems was kind of like minor Safdie. I think they were still kind of finding their way. Sure. And I think they they were fully realized with Good Time. Yeah. Good Time really blew my mind. And I was really excited about Uncut Gems because of the potential that I thought that, that I had seen in Good Time, you know? Sure. And of course, there was all this hype about the central performance of Adam Sandler and all that stuff. And that we, we, can, we go through this thing every few years whenever he makes like a good movie and we're like, oh my God, he's a right. good actor. Yeah. It's like the same, you know, conversation we've had like five other times. And people uh, forget every time. Every single time. <laughs> That's what happens when you make Grown Ups 11. You're right. No. You know, it's his fault, really, I'd say. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, I was really excited. I was a little worried, actually, because... Good Time was such an exercise in style and sure. such a successful exercise in style that I was really hoping that they wouldn't just come back and and then like do the same thing again. Yeah. Which they did and they didn't. Mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised that it was to me it felt like growth uh while while still being very much in that that style which I think they now inhabit that kind of they they now have like a a thing that nobody else has. It's so much a Safety Brothers movie yeah. with a little more money. With more, but with yeah, but without the common problem of like of, of like solving problems with money instead of creatively, which sure. so many successful stories end that way, where like they have a great movie that they've made on ten cents, and then they get the the whole world given to them, and they just blow it because right. they start solving the problems with money and not creatively. This still feels like it still feels like it's cheap, yeah, but in the best way possible. Right, that's not a, that's not a criticism. Absolutely, it still feels like they were like it's all running on adrenaline and passion. Yeah. Um. But I even think it's more sophisticated in a, in a story sense, but we'll talk about that more. Sure, yeah. This is going to be a long conversation. I already know. I mean, this is my most awaited movie of the year, so mm-hmm. I'm definitely looking forward to talking about it. And I know we discussed ahead of time. you got a lot of pieces. So why don't we jump in and get to your first puzzle piece? All right, so I want to get a puzzle pie- a couple puzzle pieces out of the way, uh, just because I feel like they're slightly obligatory. I want to say PTA, uh, Punch Drunk Love, slash Heart 8. Mm-hmm. So the thing about uh, Punch Drunk Love, I'll just touch on it briefly because I think the only similarity is in the genius of the casting. I sure. think both PTA and the Safdie brothers, not only did they know how to harvest the potential of Adam Sandler as a performer, but there's something else that I think is one level more genius, uh, which is that they knew they had a very unlikable character with, yeah. with Howard. They knew that in Uncut Gems... Uh, they needed to elicit uh, some sympathy for us to want to keep watching this guy make worse and worse decisions. And I think it was kind of a stroke of genius, either from the Safties, which I think it is from them, because they wanted him like 10 years ago when right. they first imagined this film, but also maybe from the casting director or you know, whoever was in that conversation. Because when we look at Adam Sandler, we have a very hard time separating 
you know, Happy Gilmore. Right. You know, yes, he disappeared into Howard, but he didn't disappear entirely. He's you know? a lov- lovable sociopath. Yeah, exactly. And so there's just something, and that's this is not something that narrative storytelling or the craftsmanship of the filmmaking, they didn't try to manipulate us into having uh, empathy for the character. It was just something that he exudes in his performance yeah. unconsciously. You know, he, I think he played the roughest and most intense character he could, but just because of who he is, we were sucked in and had this other emotional connection. So I think that was kind of a, you know, either they lucked into it or that was a very wise decision that both PTA and Sam and uh, the Safety brothers, pardon me, used uh, in their films. And that's how I feel they're connected. And then of course, Heart Eight kind of superficially, that it's a lot about, about gambling and that sure. kind of, you know, that arena. So I think the work of PTA though, and uh, is definitely um, connected and his vision for Sandler is a big part of their vision for Sandler. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they clearly for that punch drunk love, which I also have on my list of pieces. Um, you know, it, it's it's a movie where they clearly had a vision of this is what we know and love about Adam Sandler, and let's write to those strengths, but in a different way that we haven't really quite seen before. And I think PTA did that with Punch Drunk Love. I think he knew he saw something in him and and went for it. You know? Yeah, I mean, PTA has has said that like he's like, oh, I really like. Adam Sandler films that kind of turn my brain off. And, you know, if I want to just kind of have fun, I watch an Adam Sandler movie. And I think he even described Punch Drunk Love as an art house Adam Sandler movie. Right. Like he actually used that, you know, those kind of phrases to describe his own film. So I think he knew, like, the kind of the bottled up rage. Uh, and I recently went back and reread Roger Ebert's review of Punch Drunk Love. And mm-hmm. it, was ta- it was basically talking about why he doesn't like all the other. Uh, Adam Sandler films. <laughs> it's like uh, that he's basically this angry, rage-filled, you know, person. Yeah. And they, you know, he try and he, you know, takes it out in juvenile comedy. And then in PTA's film, he was able to explore that in a more um, kind of delicate and deep way. And it's funny, is I'll just be honest. I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge Punch Drunk Love fan. Mm. I know that's sacrilege to a lot of film nerds or buffs or whatever. But right. it, I found it irritating, and I found it overly. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess. <laughs> he's uh, he's much more talented than I think most of his films would su- would suggest, and mm-hmm. so I have a kind of love hate with him. But I uh, but I want it's time to revisit it. I think I want to really focus more on Adam Sandler's performance and give that its due. So, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I I love that movie. And uh, you know what? One last thing before moving on, just the the idea of you know writing for a you know, for a performer who was mostly known for comedy, you know who else they were going for after Adam Sandler walked away from the project? I heard about it. Who? Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, wow. Yeah, they I... even got to, like, table reads and everything, and, like, it oh. was very possibly going to happen when Adam Sandler couldn't do it or didn't want to do it, actually, at right. first. And so, yeah, that was going to be their second choice. And a, a whole host of other uh, basketball players that yeah. <laughs> had it, they had in mind. Um, I hadn't heard about Cohen. I'd heard yeah. about Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill, I believe, was for one of the other roles, maybe, though. Or maybe it was for that role. I think he was for Howard originally. Yeah. And then, because I think, what I, what, uh, I don't know the lineage entirely, but I think Adam Sandler passed on it. Right. And then Jonah Hill was up for it either before Cohen or after. Yeah. And then um, Sandler finally took on the role. Yeah. He passed three times. (laughs) I think it scared him. Yeah. I would imagine. I I really did. Even though we see it as like kind of like a, a logical extension of his, of his talent. Um, and that, in a way, uh, Uncut Gems is very much like a serious Sandler film, the same way uh, Punch Drunk Love was. Yeah, you know, and it kind of you know it, it, uh, orbits his whole thing. I don't know if he really saw it in himself. Yeah, 
I saw an interview with him and Brad Pitt, and he talked about how like he dreaded the more emotional days. You know, yeah. that it was like he was hoping it was last on the schedule on the call sheet because he, uh, <laughs> he didn't know if he could bring it. Right, but right. I think he has, I think his comfort zone is comedy. I think films like this, which he makes seem effortless, are not, though. I think they're not effortless for him. Right. It seems. But he gave us, you know, phenomenal performance. Oh, yeah. He, he absolutely crushed it. Um, all right. I'm going to go to my first puzzle piece, which is actually a trio of movies, all from Darren Aronofsky. Uh, I'm going to start off with Requiem for a Dream for uh, just that uh, that constant progression of shit going from bad to worse, you know? <laughs> um, the Wrestler uh, being this guy who, you, you know, you just know he's not going to stop until it kills him, you know? Um, and then Mother, which just the this movie is... You know, one of the things that I love so much about Mother, uh, which is, you know, one of my favorite movies of the last decade, uh, is just on a technical level, just it's like you're just kind of in awe watching it and watching how much he was balancing and making that movie, how how many things with the choreography and the sound and the, the cinematography and everything coming together in a way that's like, how the fuck are they doing this, you know? And that's the feeling I get from from Uncut Gems, especially in the sound department, but really in every department. But the the idea that they're able to balance so much happening at once, and it's chaos, but it's chaos that uh, is still something you can follow along with and that you 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 feel like... You feel like you understand what's happening, despite the fact that everything is just so freaking increasingly crazy and so much happening at once is is just uh, magical almost. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. A lot of things I've read about the film is that people find it unwatchable. You yeah. Know? For the most part, it's become, it's been critically acclaimed. Yeah. But I think the average audience member is very split. A couple of people walked out of the screening that I was in. I think some people find it too grating. Yeah. You know, it's too intense for them. And to touch on your puzzle piece... Um, I think Darren Aronofsky and the Safties have something in common, which is that they're kind of intrigued by these character studies. A lot of their films are not large ensemble pieces, but they are about one type of person, mm-hmm. usually a person who's spiraling downward or out of control. Sure. Uh, and yet the world around them is such a vivid and realized place. Right. Which they do that cinematically, you know, through their through their ability to speak cinematically through their craft. They really flesh out the world around it and make it feel palpable and make it feel real. And yet it never kind of strays away from being this one man show or this one person show. Right. Um, which kind of brings me to my puzzle piece to kind of, you know, roll off of yours a little. Sure. Um, although I want to get back to the sound department on, on another puzzle piece. But okay. Right now I'm going to slip in on the, on the one person uh, strategy, which is going to be the work of Marty Scorsese. Sure. Uh, the films in particular, uh, Raging Bull, and Casino, mm-hmm. but also the king of comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raging Bull, for the obvious reason, I think it's about a self-destructive character. It's about a person, it's about a, it's a, it's a character study on, a, on one person and, their, and the flaws, their Achilles heel, that, that just destroys them. So I sure. think there's a lot, you know, I think uh, Raging Bull is a blueprint for a lot of filmmakers that have this kind of uh, um, very singular vision about a, a character. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, such a, it's such a masterfully brilliant tragedy. Then you have Casino again for this kind of the energy. I think the Safties were compared a lot to Scorsese with Good Time of like um, of Mean Streets mean and streets, you know, yeah. things like that. So 
I think, and then he, Scorsese even executive produced uh, Uncut Gems. Yeah, I was surprised when I saw his name. I didn't realize that like ahead of time. Yeah, he always has he has his hands on a lot of sure pies, does. You know, while he's doing stuff. He's also doing the new Marvel shit. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> uh, no. So he uh, and he, I think he saw their you know the influence that he had on them through Good Time, and maybe wanted to kind of step in and help them go to a new level, which yeah. is really cool of him to do. Uh, but yeah, so I see the energy of Scorsese in their work. I think the gritty 1970s New York is also right out of you know Scorsese's playbook. Yeah, that uh, the Safdies really want their films to feel like they're not necessarily dated, but they are not in 2019. Sure, you know what I mean, he doesn't have AirPods in or anything. You know, he uses a cell phone and everything, but now it's it just kind of bleeds into this grain, this texture that makes it feel like it's a very specific moment. The, the, what they're capturing there. I mean, it, and, and it's very, very accurate for as quick as things are moving. Uh, you're catching little bits and pieces of things from the technology they use Mm -hmm. to just the, uh, the look of the clothes and everything. I mean, it's really very specific, you know? Well, what's I thought was really interesting is that they decided to make it in 2012. Right. You know, the fact that it's a recent period piece, which at maybe first glance doesn't feel like it is necessary, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same, I think having walked away and thought about it, I think it's a crucial part of their vision. Yeah, because they this guy is almost a relic. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you know, the Howard Carey. I mean, it's very real, it's very modern, and yet I feel like a couple of years ago this story would have been more realistic than it is maybe in 2019. Maybe things are a little too easy communication and knowing where people are every second is a little bit too too much for this kind of story. A, right. a worm like Howard benefits from, you know, not having a GPS tracker on him at all times. Sure. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah, this kind of recent period piece was really interesting. And I feel it's kind of a Scorsese move, kind of a feels like a like a creative flourish. Yeah. And yet in the, in hindsight it really helps put the whole puzzle together. Sure. Um and then the last thing I'll mention about King of Comedy, besides it being kind of darkly humorous, sure. Is that uh they cast a serious actor to play a comedian. They cast Robert uh, Robert De Niro as a kind of a you know crazy lunatic Jerry Lewis type, and now in this they reverse that and they cast a comedian for a very serious role. Sure, but I think I think there's some kind of uh, connection there as well. Absolutely, um, I will you know just jump right into my next puzzle piece, which goes right along with that, The Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. Um, just I mean this movie, uh, it, it's. You know the the excess of of this character and like the the you know kind of greed level. I mean the the really the chasing that that uh, the win. You know <laughs> the uh, constant yeah. need for more winning. You know, uh, and one of my favorite things in this movie, and it's like kind of a small thing about it, but is when he's at home, like his family, his kids, like the those shitty kids. <laughs> I love it. And uh I mean they those kids are they seem like they're growing up right in his same footsteps and they've got like all the shit they could imagine. And I, I just love that. It's so funny. And and those kids are they do such a great job <laughs> of playing that uh I, I know those kids, you know what I mean? From sure. gro- from growing up, from my Jew camp, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know those kids, and uh, I, I love that whole thing. And they, they just get whatever the hell they want, and they're going to... You could imagine them going through life just expecting more and more and more, winning and winning and winning and excess and excess, you know, which reminded me of of that drive in The Wolf of Wall Street. No, I can definitely see that. And I think it's it's great mentioning the the kids because the daughter in particular who just feels like she has his number 
Yeah. You know, like he, she just knows that he's full of shit. Yeah. And that whatever he says doesn't really matter because, you know, he's, he's not going to be doing what he said he's, he's going to be doing, you know, and, uh, she feels very entitled, but at the same time, it makes him feel like a real character. Well, I think one of the things the Safis are good at is not making a narrative that is very predictable, mm-hmm. uh, which I think a lot of people find, a lot of people who aren't ready to kind of take the ride can find it superficial. But I think there's a lot of breadcrumbs that make these people feel real. Again, Howard felt very real to me. And yeah. I think one of the ways that they succeeded in doing that is to give that little moment in the kitchen scene where he's like trying to compliment his daughter, but it's just so empty. He's just yeah. trying to like talk to her for five seconds so that he can justify that he's a good dad. Right, right. He's, he's trying to convince himself. Right. He, yeah. He's just like, you're, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of you. And she's like, you've already said that five times. He's like, well, I just wanted to say it again. Yeah. Like he's just doing it because he knows he's a shit dad. Yeah. And she knows that he's a shit dad, and they both know. You know, they, there's no, you know, nothing, no yeah. fantasy here. Yeah. But he's just saying it so that he can feel better about himself. So a moment like that makes him feel like a really well-rounded, full character, and that leaves a lot of the expositional scenes that you find in most movies. You get them out of the way. Yeah. You know, now that I connect so intensely to this guy, uh, I don't need to go and you know get his backstory and why he you know is the way that he is. He's just an absolute. He just is what he is, and yeah. we can feel that. So I think that, I mean, even like a Jordan Belfort type character, uh, I think Scorsese has a more classical approach to his storytelling, to where you get these very big, ambitious worlds, you know, he wore Wolf of Wall Street, and it's almost like an X-rated Forrest Gump, you know yeah. what I mean? When I think about Scorsese's, <laughs> like, really in-depth stories, they're, they're like, the, they're, they kind of have a classical design to them, uh-huh. where Safdies have kind of cut through the bullshit, and they yeah. do it really quickly, and it's all, you know, through the energy, but... Uh, but no, I can definitely see the connection of greed and money and just how that drives people. And that's yeah, just interesting. Sure. Absolutely. Well, what do you got for your next piece? So I want to go back to the sound department for a second, because I think one of the most important influences here is the, the work of Robert Altman mm. uh, and uh, a great director and two films in particular. The first one being California Split, which is kind of an unloved gem. A little wink, wink. How about that terrible pun? Huh? <laughs> an unloved gem. From Robert Altman. I'm sorry, everybody. I, I, no. lo- I love it. Uh, it is. It's an overlooked gem of his r- repertoire, mm-hmm. as they say. Uh, but it's about a gambling addict. And it's about always looking for that next win. You know? yeah. And it's even though there's some highs, there's also some really bad lows. And, uh, and then uh, another film called The Player, uh, which is a, a great film, kind of the insider stuff about Hollywood. And the reason I bring that up is because I feel like Uncut Gems shows us the inside of this network, this diamond, you know, 47th Street in New York. You know, it's like a whole culture. It's yeah. a whole world, these diamond peddlers. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to a gentleman that I know from New York, he's, and he's an older guy, and he was like, you know, if you ever wanted a diamond, you went down to 47th Street. You know, yeah. it's like a whole idea. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, and even Sandler went and spent time with those guys. So I feel like the way that we kind of got an inside track on Hollywood, we also got this inside track of this diamond business from this film. Sure. Again, it has the Aronofsky obsession of like, we're going to follow one guy around or the, or the Jake LaMotta raging bull of like, this is about one person, but the world is so sketched and so brilliant. And then when it comes to sound design, uh, Robert Altman famously loved characters speaking over each other. Mm. So you have these movies like Nashville and Gosford Park and all these excellent films that he made, uh, McCabe and Miss Miller. One of his most uh, famous strategies is having characters overlapping. He had these large ensemble casts. Yeah. Unlike the Safties, right? That's, he, they kind of do the opposite. But they took a play out of his playbook. And I think you mentioned to me that they had 60 pages of ADR. Right. Yeah. I, I listened to this 
fascinating interview with them. I mean, it's just crazy. They're saying about how uh, I think it was Scott Rudin, the producer, yeah. uh, was like, "Like, uh, are are you people serious? Like, <laughs> when do you when they and like entire roles that aren't there, like new roles just out of ADR, yeah. you know? And it's just it's wild. Um, yeah, that's right from Altman. Yeah, you know Altman's technique. Um, he deliberately made his films rated R. He always he would add a couple of fucks. So that kids couldn't go see his movies. Yeah. Not being, you know, he just didn't want, he didn't want to have to pander from a marketing standpoint for kids, but he also made stuff that was more adult. And that one of the, it was, and they were challenging to the audience. He deliberately tested you. And one of the ways he did that was through his sound design. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Safdies saw the value in that for the type of world they wanted to create. I think that they definitely are influenced by California Split, and I'm sure they love Altman. Uh, and I think that that was something that was conscious, in, in my opinion. Yeah, they they brought up Altman in that interview I listened to. Oh, absolutely. Cool. So yeah, you're a hundred percent on on with that. And uh, and yeah, I mean it, that that is such a it's such a New York thing too. You know, to people the, screaming over each other. Yeah, nonstop talking <laughs> and screaming in the background. Yeah, yeah. So it, well, it it gives you know a lot of a lot of standard viewers, people that just go to the movies for fun. They they don't realize often, and they're not supposed to. This is not. Uh, disparaging to them in any way they're not supposed to notice but how much a film works on works on you subconsciously sure it works on you abstractly Uh, there's so many things you know know, they call it movie magic and a lot of big reason of that is that you're able to elicit emotions out of people without really giving them all the cards without showing them all the ways that you're manipulating them yeah Uh, manipulation has such a negative connotation but a lot of good art and film in particular which enters you on such an emotional level not an intellectual level it's manipulative, you know, and it's and, and I think to a positive result. If the film is done well or has something interesting to say or is important artistically or sure. has integrity, it's a good thing. Uh, and I think the tension you feel, uh, you know, how how tense could you feel watching Adam Sandler quickly walk down a sidewalk? Right. But with all, you know, I mean, it, uh, yeah, his performance definitely lent itself to the the stress factor of the film. But the sound design, the visuals, the lighting, all of that stuff is working on you unconsciously. Uh, to you know, to pucker up your ass as you watch the movie. So right. the dialogue, I think, is um one of the more egregious strokes because you can it you can hear it and it's it has a kind of a calamity about it. Right. Uh, but again, you wouldn't really process it as something you know nerve shredding the way that it is. Sure. So it's it's really a stroke of of craftsmanship. I, I I'm it was, I was pretty impressed with the film from a lot of different reasons, but also. For young directors, their command of the craft. Well, that's, yeah, that's the main thing. I mean, before I move on to my next piece, I, that, that's the main thing. When I walked out of this movie, I'm like, I, I definitely liked this, but I mean, I'm sitting there, you know, comparing it to Good Time, and I'm like, how much, it was my most anticipated movie of the year, how much yeah. I like it, but as I've been just going back over and over the craft of this thing, and like, how the hell do they pull all this off? You know, like I said earlier with the mother puzzle piece, I mean, I get a lot of that kind of vibe of like, how the hell do you make this happen? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just wild. It's cool. So, uh, for my next puzzle piece, um, I'm going to go with a, I don't know if this is a, uh, I, I consider it a little minor classic from the year 2000. Ooh. Um, it is a movie called Boiler Room. You remember oh, this movie? Oh, I, yeah, I remember Boiler Room. <laughs> ben Affleck, Giovanni Ribisi. Giovanni Ribisi. Oh man, and uh, yeah, I mean they're they're uh, yeah, Vin Diesel. <laughs> Vin Diesel's best role when he when he showed a promise of being a good actor. Oh, I mean, Dreamcast. God damn. I love Boiler Room. Uh, but yeah, just this this fly by night brokerage firm, and they're just all just 
going at it so crazy. There, a lot of that over, you know, people just going nuts in the background, all kinds of crosstalk happening as sure. they're screwing people out of their money. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, you get a, a lot of that just like crazy adrenaline filled energy in that movie Um, that win, 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 win energy, you know, like again with, uh, like I was saying with Wolf of Wall Street yeah. and, uh, but then again, some of that Altman thing of the, over, you know, the overlap and there's just constant stuff happening in that room as they're all trying to make their deals and screw people you know yeah i mean now that i think about it boiler room is almost like oliver stone martin scorsese and robert altman had right. an amazing baby yeah which i'd like to watch that if possible watch yeah. those three go at it and yeah. make a child but if <laughs> that's a if that were humanly movie. possible <laughs> yeah. biologically possible i think yeah. you'd probably have boiler room now I'm just thinking about that image. Me too. <laughs> Let's just take a moment of silence to reflect on that. Now, I'm just... People listening at home, he's staring at me as he says <laughs> me too. <laughs> Sweat rolled down my temple. Now, I, I'm so tempted to go into a, an aside all about Vin Diesel, but I will, in the interest of time, I will save it for next time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just one, one very quick thing. Uh, Chris and I are going to be recording soon in the next week or two a special episode on... The, the the movies that are not our top 10 of the decade, but are movies that we think are going to be, people are going to continue to talk about 20, 30, 40 years from now. Not, not our favorite movies, not the best picture winners, not the biggest box office. This is the kind of movie I'm talking about from the decade previous, is yeah, Boiler Room. You sure. know, it's the kind of movie, it's like, it wasn't the biggest thing in the world, but everybody is still but not everybody but people who love movies still talk about yeah it's it, like know? when you went it's like you went to blockbuster and you always saw it yeah on the shelf yeah it was still released on vhs yeah. and you just always saw that i could see giovanni rubisi standing right now on the cover <laughs> yeah like a green outline <laughs> yeah i could see it in my mind yeah, that's actually interesting yeah we're gonna to bring that up is like what kind of movies will stick in our craw yeah. for so long? That's that's hard to predict. It is. It's very hard. It's so t tempting to say the biggest movie or your favorite movie, and we're gonna really. I'm gonna, I'm trying to make a very credible list and yeah. see, and maybe ten years from now, when we're still making this podcast, we'll we'll uh, we'll come back and see if we we were right. Yeah. I don't know. Absolutely. I think Uncut Gems might be on there. It's very very possible. Yeah. So uh, what do you got for your next piece? Man, Boiler Room. Great piece. All right. Mine might stole the show. <laughs> so I'm going to bring up um, a great French filmmaker, a guy named Brisson, uh, which I've mentioned on the podcast before, kind of a, uh, a realist master. Mm -hmm. uh, three films from him, uh, Pickpocket, A Man Escaped, and uh, L'Argent. Uh, and it's uh, just, he's, he's one of the great social realism uh, directors. Uh, he used a lot of non-actors the way that the Safties uh, do. A lot of people in Uncut Gems are actually first-time acting. And uh, the fact that they have this kind of plodding, simplistic plot, and yet somehow you don't see, they don't see the end coming. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about Uncut Gems is like the ending is so obvious only after you see it. Right, right. As soon as you, but when it happens, you know, I was, I was, my mouth was agape. I was shocked. Yeah. And that's a very Brisson thing. He made these movies, like, for instance, A Man Escaped is just the very simple, basic execution of a man escaping from a prison. Uh -huh. And the title of the movie gives the suspense away. A Man, esca a man Escaped, and that's the title. And you watch a man escape. That's yeah. it. And yet, it's riveting. Mm -hmm. And it's not punchy. It's not overly complicated. There's not a lot of editing tricks. It's paced and simple and straightforward and almost poetic. I think 
what the Safties take from from him is the simplicity of their plots, not necessarily their energies. You know, uh, Brisson is a much more uh, meditative type filmmaker. Pickpocket, another kind of uh, crime, urban, social commentary story. Um, his final film uh, about, uh, not Pickpocket, but L'Argent was uh, uh, his final film about, you know, someone uh, passing a phony bill and how someone else gets held responsible and how they soon spiral out into a violent act because their whole huh. life was taken away from a mistake. So these kind of basic, simple, easy, elegant concepts uh, and that, that then are just done and they're just executed. Right. There's no, not a lot of showy flashiness. And yet, because they're so simple, they end up becoming very riveting and also inevitability becomes surprising, hmm. which I think the Safdies do amazing, just like Brisson. He made inevitability somehow surprising. And I think that was, in my opinion, like I'm, when I watched Good Time, I had no idea how it was going to end. Right. And I think there was more of a surprise, although he gets arrested. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, in hindsight, again, there's not, it's not that shocking. Right. Know, they didn't really throw us like, like a curveball with their narrative. Right. But, and yet, but we still had no idea how it was going to end. I was 30 minutes out until the end of Uncut Gems, and I was like, how is this going to end? Yeah. What's going to happen? And yet, what happened, I don't want to ruin it. I know people would usually watch the movie by the time they listen to this podcast. Sure. The ending is still juicy enough. I won't just come out right and say it. Okay. But when I saw that, I was shocked. Yes. And then five seconds after, I was like, of course. So that's a really amazing trick to pull off, is to give us something so simple and so basic and so direct, and yet still have it be completely surprising. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So Brisson was a master of that. Totally different energy, totally different style, but I think they definitely take a, a, a play out of his book in terms of their stripped-down narratives, their really inevitable stories, and yet their total command of surprise. I like the word inevitable. It really, like goes to what makes it such a great ending you know yeah i agree I agree yeah how could it have not ended that way right exactly you know as soon as like i said i was oh oh my god and then yeah. two seconds later i was like well yeah duh <laughs> that didn't take away from the wonderful you know the element of this you know the ending i wasn't like disappointed i mean when i say duh i mean like well yeah i should have figured that out yeah and yet i was still had my hand my nails in the seat being like what is going to happen to howard how is he going to get out of this yeah and that's just a really impressive thing when you don't have a lot of narrative tricks. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you watch a movie like Inception, you're like, yeah, who the hell knows what's going to happen? Right. We're, you know, we're in the fifth dream. Is he, in, you know, is he, is he old? Is he young? What's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> but you watch this movie and it's like Howard's just fucking up. Yeah. And the ending is so inevitable. Yeah. And yet I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. How, how could I not have? Right. That's a pretty amazing trick. It is. And Brisson was a uh, total master of that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, for my next puzzle piece, uh, I am going to go with 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh my God, man after my own heart. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a certain element to this movie of like a, a kind of, uh, you know, zooming in, uh, and then zooming back out on a micro macro level. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at this one story of this, this, uh, this, this jewel dealer, and then you're looking at the the guy, the basketball player that he sells the jewel to, and how all you know that's this big thing that you know the world is watching. Nobody's watching Howard. You know he's just this this right. one guy. Caught in the wheel. Yeah. And then on that bigger level is the world watching this basketball player, 
And then in the beginning and the end, we get the like the 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 cosmos inside the gem, and so it's like you're you're going all the way out to that. But then you also come back in in the in the uh, the introduction in Africa to the gem first being you know mined, and so you're getting another area of of what's happening within this big grander story, you know. Mm. And so it's just all these different levels of the story of all these. Uh, people and things that are touched by by the gem basically and so i i just think that in that way it's like it's you're getting all these different uh different bigger and smaller uh views of what's happening with this story i can i mean yeah that's a really interesting observation i hadn't put it together and um, I actually have no Kubrick puzzle pieces on this, so uh, wow! So thank you for letting me talk about it for five seconds. There you I think go. You, just, you do this for for mer- of mercy. This is a mercy I, piece. This is a mercy piece that I can then talk about. No, no, and I think you have a very compelling argument of why that is the way that it is, or why you think that puzzle piece is appropriate. The, you know, the thing about two thousand one is that it works predominantly as a metaphor. Uh-huh. You know, it, it has a extremely engaging uh, narrative. Uh, but it's also very simplistic and very basic. It's essentially a silent film. What, what works best about 2001 and why it's so iconic is because of its ideas. Yeah. And I think it's because it also keeps them abstract enough to keep us interested and curious. Uh-huh. And I think that, um, I think in a, in a less literal way, I can see how that gem is representative of something bigger and how it kind of connects everything. Yeah. You know? It's in a way, it's like a MacGuffin. Sure. You know, it's very much a MacGuffin, very much like, like the monolith. The yeah. monolith can almost be consi- considered a MacGuffin, something yeah. that sets the action in, in play. Yeah. Not only narratively, but all of mankind in this instance, in, in, sure. you know, in 2001. Well, it's, it's a big movie. It's so. a big, <laughs> big MacGuffin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, no, so it's very, very interesting, and I can definitely see that. And I like, to me, it's like you know, the fact that it's a MacGuffin, um, it almost has a, it harkens back to like an earlier genre of film, which mm-hmm. is like it has you know, this, this, the treasure. Sure. You know what I mean? It's almost like I read an interesting article that I'm happy you brought this up because I would have forgotten to mention it, but I think it was a review of some sort. And they were talking about how it's like this, you know, this movie about Howard in 2012 in the New York Jewel District is like the same guy, what drove people to look for Atlantis. Right. It's what drove people to look for El Dorado. Right. You know, it's like it's the same basic impulse that turns men crazy right. looking for gold. Yeah. And it's like this, and again, it's another way to look at Uncut Gems as this ultra simplification of even narrative storytelling, of film, you know, film theory. Because obviously these guys are film fanatics. Right? Oh, they watch yeah. a lot of cinema. And again, I don't know if this is conscious of them. I don't know if they did this on purpose, but they almost hearkened back to El Dorado. Mm-hmm. You know, not that that was, that was not one of my puzzle pieces as, as, as a movie, but it could very easily be one. Sure. And I think it, it's tapping into what you're talking about with what 2001 taps in. With 2001, it's about human potential. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about where are we going to go? What are, you know, Stanley always made films that are contrarian in, in a lot of ways. He, he was interested in, in how our greatest uh, feats, our greatest accomplishments were also our downfall. Because right. if we were... The greater we get, the more inhuman we become, right? Mm. HAL 9000 is the greatest accomplishment, and yet it's a human computer. So it's distancing ourselves. Like The greater we get, the less human we become. And the only way that we can uh, defeat this Achilles heel or this this paradox is by moving beyond it, which that's represented in the Star Child, right? We go to the next level of of human evolution, and Dave becomes the baby, the Mm. the next step. And so there's always these kind of human paradoxes in Stanley's films. 
And I can even see that right in Uncut Gems, especially if you look at it at this macro level, this huge, big, wide, stepping back level. Yeah. Um, and think of it, again, almost like, you know, the treasure of the Sierra Madre or, like, you know, it's just really cool. It's a cool puzzle piece. Got yeah. me all nerdy. <laughs> so I, I'm, I don't think I'm making any more sense, so I'll wrap it up. But that's interesting. I've Another, you're knocking out of the park. Knocking them out. Real, Love qu- it. real quick, before we move on, um, you know, just, I briefly, that's kind of the first time I think we've even talked about the, the basketball element of this. I mean, I know neither of us are sports people, but uh, Kevin Garnett is freaking great in this as a How non-actor. Yeah. So good. I was really impressed. I loved him in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really cool. You know, a really cool thing. Yeah. I think that was awesome that they chose to do that. Yeah. I didn't know, like, I, I, I haven't, I don't care enough to look into it, but I was like, I wonder if he, there was really like an important game in 2012. Yeah, I think it was. Okay. Uh, from, from my understanding of it. But then again, I don't know shit about oh, sports. Yeah. So yeah. I'm with Scorsese. Anything with a, anything with a ball, no good. Nah. I think it's one of his quotes. Nice. He's a smart guy. Yeah. So no Marvel and no balls. Nice. Nice. All right. What do you got next? Oh, that wasn't my puzzle piece. No, I'm that, sorry. that was me, baby. <laughs> I'm sorry, I hijacked it. I'm sorry. I bet everyone listening was like, oh, shit, he mentioned 2001. Uh-oh. Shut up. Um, so I'm going to make a... So there's another uh, underrated film that is very sadly underseen that I'm going to mention. A movie called Owning Mahoney. Mm, yeah. uh, and it's about a gambling addict. Uh, and it's a fierce performance by, by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sure. Have you seen the film? Yeah, they actually had a... Uh... A screening at a uh, an addiction film festival here in Vegas. Whoa. Yeah, like five, six years ago. One of my music videos that deals with addiction played there. Um, yeah. That is bizarre. I know. I am, that is, threw me for a loop. <laughs> I know. But uh, but yeah, no, that's a great movie. Yeah, it's a great, and it's made by a, a great filmmaker, a guy named Richard Kofietnyovsky. I have a, it's a hard time pronouncing that name, but he made another movie, which is one of my all-time favorites, called Love and Death on Long Island, mm. uh, with John Hurt and Jason Priestley. Weird movie, so homoerotic, absolutely fantastic film. And he also made Owning Mahoney, and the, both those films, he's only made two feature films, uh, which is a tragedy, he should make more, uh, or someone should let him make more, as I should, is what I should say. But they're about men that are obsessed. They're mm-hmm. about obsession. And I think a lot of that, connect. there's a lot of connective tissue there with the Safties. I'm a big person who's inspired by obsession-based characters. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why that is is because you can justify almost anything through obsession. People will do anything to to satisfy or to scratch that itch sure. uh, or to explore their obsession further. So you have a lot of unpredictability built into characters when you drive them through obsession. Yeah. Again, searching for ways to make things less cliched, less trite, uh, looking for ways... Uh, to make things feel fresher and more original is usually by playing, you know, with the structure, mixing things up a little bit, keeping us guessing. Mm. And a character driven by obsession is wonderful to do that. Gambling addiction, uh, more a more common understood version of of obsession, you know, kind of a crystallized version of obsession, uh, is how it takes the form in these two movies, Owning Mahoney mm. and Uncut Gems. One that's interesting about Uncut Gems is it's also kind of a crime film. Or pardon me, uh, Owning Mahoney is a crime film in the sense that he steals money. He, sure. becomes, a, he becomes a thief. Yeah. But um, it's interesting. This character, all his emotions are beneath the surface, Philip Seymour Hoffman's. You know, it's all underneath that, that, that pale, piggish uh, exterior <laughs> that he had uh, to where an uncut gems is right on his sleeve. You know, yeah. you see the desperation in Adam's eyes. So that's kind of a different approach to the addiction. One's keeping it together until it's too late, and then one's never together. You know, yeah. once you're losing it. Um, but I think the same 
obsession drives them. And it's sure. a bird's eye view into a, the idea of gambling addiction. Sure. And I want to just mention it because people should seek it out and watch it. Love and Death on Long Island and also Owning Mahoney, two fantastic underrated, underseen films. All right. Yeah, I've never, I've never seen Love and Death on Long Island. It's a gem. Yeah? It's an uncut gem. All right. No, it's seriously, it's such a great movie. It's about, a, it's about an English novelist who happens to walk into the wrong movie theater and see a bad teen comedy, like in the vein of like Porky's, mm-hmm. and Jason Priestley is playing a shitty B-list actor, not dissimilar to Jason Priestley. Yeah. And, uh, he like, and the novelist, who's been married, whose wife is now dead, just falls in love with him. And he has all these latent homosexual feelings that he never really knew or confronted. And he then goes to Long Island. He travels there and then like befriends him and like secretly kind oh, of like a, it becomes obsessed with him and then he confesses love to him. And Jason Priestley's like, whoa, I'm just some actor. You're a crazy old British guy. Yeah. It's one of John Hurt's most beautiful performances. It's a great movie. And yeah, terribly underseen. Sounds great, man. Uh, all right. I'm going to go with another... Uh gambling movie uh and it's one that i haven't seen in a long time and i'm sure there's much better gambling movies that could be used as puzzle pieces but i thought of rounders oh yeah yeah which is uh just you know just an extreme you know addiction to gambling kind of a movie don't really have that much more to say to it it's just i was thinking about what are some you know great gambling movies of the last you know 20 30 years and uh that one's always stood out to me as just the uh you know just the, that uh the patheticness, <laughs> you know what I mean? Of yeah. like just being just stuck in that cycle and just no way to get out. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Rounders is actually a pretty good little movie. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it in a while, but I like that film. And you know what's interesting about all addiction is that when you're not in the addiction, they all seem so frivolous. Right. You know, like not to, uh, not to speak ill of the dead, but kind of bringing back to... um Philip Seymour Hoffman is like he died in like the two thousand like late two thousands or the early twenty teens or whatever from heroin addiction. Yeah. And I was like, how glam? Versus this nineteen seventy? I was like, cat's out of the bag on heroin, Phil. Yeah. We know that it's not a good drug. You know what I mean? Like, where were you doing? Yeah. Now of course that's a glib, silly, you know, thing. I don't truly feel that way. And I feel terrible for him and his family that lost him. But it's like, we know what all these, you know, to me, it's easy to not try heroin. Right. You know, it's yeah. like, I don't really bump into a lot of heroin. That's right. not really kind of my, my thing. Right. Only recently did I find out that cocaine is such a recreational drug for people like <laughs> on Thursday night going to TGI Fridays. Right. Looking right. to get into the booger sugar. I, yeah. thought, I thought you had to be Scarface. I thought That's, you had to murder yeah. Colombians. You just turned 30, right? Just turned 30. I think I was around 30 when I found that out, too. I had no idea. <laughs> I was out with friends at like, like a Chili's and really? they wanted some cocaine. I was like, yeah. what? <laughs> I had the same like <laughs> awakening. I was like, wait, what? What are you Are serious? you a drug dealer? They're like, no. And I was like, do you have a gun? <laughs> do you, are you wearing a wire? Yeah, like, do you have a gun on you? <laughs> or is someone after you? <laughs> and so yeah I, I had no idea that it was so recreational but again that's another aside but uh yeah i mean i don't really bump into heroin too often so yeah when i think i mean and you and i live in las vegas yeah the gambling addiction capital of the world yeah where they want you they let you cash your paychecks at the casino yeah which is super fucked mm-hmm. so that you can go and spend it and gamble it all away and I've never been tempted. I've played, I've maybe played the slot machines like twice in my entire life. I don't think I've ever done a card game. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I, it's for us, I think it's easy to look at this and see how silly it is. Yeah. But any, like any illness, you know, all kidding aside, any illness, um, it be, it defies logic. Sure. It goes so far beyond practicality, so far beyond being 
um, being logical and it, it just becomes this very strange thing, which is another reason why I think it's primed to make movies about. Sure. You know, it's, uh, I don't think a film like Uncut Gems or even Rounders, Rounders is a little bit much more softer mainstream mm-hmm. version of it, but I don't think that they really glamorize addiction. Yeah. Um, Uncut Gems is, is a, is challenging and it's, it makes you kind of pity these people. I don't know if empathy, I don't know if you have empathy for Howard kind of going back to what we talked about because of Adam Sandler's performance or just who he is, we have an empathy, but there's also just a pity. Yeah, there's definitely pity. I mean, he's just so damn charismatic though. And that's the reason why maybe you do a little bit, you Mm -hmm. know, have empathy for him, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's that character though. I mean, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Shitty. Interesting. Yeah. All right. What do you got for your next piece? So I'm going to go with a a really excellent film, uh, called Naked, a film by Mike Lee. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I know that these guys, the Safties, are very influenced by Mike Lee. Uh, he, Mike Lee was, is kind of a giant of the social realism movement. You know, Life is Sweet is another great film of his. Um, just, there's a hand, he made a lot of great movies about these average British Americans, you know, average UKers and the, and the kind of the political and, and economical you know, plight that they're in. But Naked in particular is kind of the rougher, gruffer, edgier slime ball side of it mm. and uh not about not a, about a wonderful person so again it's kind of a character study but the world is so fleshed out because it kind of it's part of that social realism british sub genre right um and it's just it's just really tough a really hard film about hard people living a hard life and mm. it's kind of foul and disgusting in a lot of ways and i think that the safties have this courage to be gross and to be intense and to be ugly you know, in, in good time, they shot on film and they pushed it a stop so that it was it was especially grainy. Yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar, basically each type of film is rated for a certain level, a certain light, and there's a, it's called speed. So you have you know you could have 800 speed or whatever it is, and it, the, each number is is kind of designed to be within a certain light that you can either provide or find. Yeah. And then you can also shoot beyond that speed so that the grain of the film becomes exaggerated. So they were they were purposefully making look making it look like this kind of realistic gritty down in your face type movie or down in your face is that a phrase down in your face I don't know I it just invented now. it is now yeah. so that it's down in your face <laughs> and uh, yeah so anyway naked um, and there's a great film called Meantime uh, as well by Mike Lee that I know that the Safis are fond of but anything naked in particular uh, has the closest connection not only through its approach and its kind of social commentary element and its realism. Uh, but also just in the kind of the underbelly side. All right. Yeah, I've never I've never seen Naked. Um, I'm a big Mike Lee fan. Yeah. Huge Mike Lee fan. So I was really excited to see that they liked him and that I, th- I thought, oh, yeah, Naked for sure. Well, that's a good um, place to jump into uh, another puzzle piece I had. We've been talking about Good Time a bunch throughout the conversation, but also their, their film before it, Heaven Knows What. Yeah. Um, I, I think both of their previous films, I think this definitely... Uh, it definitely is a progression for them within the same kind of themes and same kind of uh, uh, same kind of film progression that they've been working in before. Of just the the things just continually spiraling out of control and things getting you know crazier and crazier and worse and worse on screen for the characters and uh, very very kind of uneasy movies. You know, it, mo- movies that. Uh, are very much interested in taking you on a ride that you maybe don't want to be a part of, yeah. you know, but but kind of forcing you into them. 
And so I think their own work is definitely something that they're trying to, you know, I, I don't want to say one up necessarily, but they're, they're definitely trying to continue in uh, the trend of what they've been doing in the past. So I think their own, their own work absolutely is inspirational to what they're doing here with this one. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, like I said, my, my biggest worry, because I liked Heaven Knows What, and I really loved uh, Good Time. The only thing I was a little fray, afraid about with Uncut Gems is that they were going to start repeating themselves. Right. Um, and in a way that they did, you mm-hmm. know, they did do that a little bit because they're stylists. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is they're not naturalistic directors, you know, compared to someone like Sidney Lumet who disappeared into all of his films. You never knew it was a Sidney Lumet film until you saw his name on the credits. You know, yeah. he, he worked in so many different styles to accommodate the story. And not every filmmaker, there's more stylists than there are naturalists. And they, the Safdies are definitely within a style. Now, they, they are very good at it, and they have a very unique and singular style, which gives them a leg up. You know, I mean, they, they're so them that yeah. that's helpful. But I, what I was pleasantly surprised about is that, uh, that Uncut Gems was an expansion of the world that I think Good Time really brought into the universe. Yeah. The story was more sophisticated, I thought. Mm-hmm. Good Time, I might like Good Time better. I don't know. Time will tell. I think yeah. Good Time, maybe just because it was so fresh to me, I was like, wow, this is something new. You yeah. know, that, that's a great feeling that I cherish. Uh, Uncut Gems did feel a lot like Good Time, so I didn't have that, oh my God, you know, you know I just discovered, you know, Eureka moment or anything. Right, right. But um, Good Time has this, um, again, I kind of use this word inevitability about it. Good Time is, has a weird inevitability about it, right? It's just a guy trying to get bail money any way that he can. Yeah. So it just leads him from one thing to the next. You know, the next character he meets leads him to the next you know, road that he takes. And it has a spontaneous quality to it, but it also feels kind of heightened and designed. Uh, and it's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. To where I think getting, I think Uncut Gems added another dimension to that. I think um, adding the, 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 they read an article about how it's like one of the most Jewish films in recent memory. Right, yeah. And I think they wisely in, in did the family gathering scene where you get to meet some of his family. And then you find out the guy he owes money to was like a, a peripheral part sure. of his family. Yeah. Uh, which adds to the element of the surprise at the end. Because yeah. you don't really know the relationship between him and the person he owes money to. Or these gangsters kind of roughing him up. We don't yeah. know how all, all that inner works. All that inner, those interconnections work. So... Um, so yeah, I think there's actually just another layer of storytelling sophistication in Uncut Gems that I didn't see in Good Time. Not that one is worse than the other. It's just different. Sure. So I was very excited that Uncut Gems wasn't just Good Time again. Yeah. It has definitely, I mean, they're kissing cousins. There's a lot of similarities. Right. And that's the thing. Yeah. And even heaven knows what. I mean, it's, it's, they're definitely, you could tell that this is, uh, you know, these are filmmakers that are working in a certain kind of world, you know? Yeah, and th- I think what they really bleed is sincerity. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I always criticize someone like Wes Anderson for, this is an example, is that I'm just bored because he's he's a great craftsman and extremely creative and very, very talented. But, but his movies are just kind of boring to me now because I know what to expect. And I, I feel like there's a wooden quality about them. I think he's lost some of his passion or lost some of his sincerity. It's almost now more style than substance. Mm-hmm. So where when I, and this is there, I mean, the Safdies are so new, so hopefully this doesn't happen to them, but their films are so dripping with passion and yeah. dripping with sincerity. Yeah. And they really are trying to say something and excavate an idea. And just because their style is slightly repetitious, it really feels like 
that's their that's the way that they feel is their best instrument. That's the best way to tell a story they really believe in. That's why when people say, uh, what superhero movie are they going to end up doing? It's just like, <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> Who says that? People. I don't read. I'm not in all the chat rooms yeah. that you are, you, you should never join any kind of chat room or Twitter <laughs> or any of that stuff. I, uh, thankfully, I don't read that stuff because yeah. it would just drive me crazy. Hopefully, never. Yes. Because that's the thing is that's what I think success is now being defined as in this industry is like you get, find these these indie you know these indie savants and then you pluck them for Ant Man Eleven or whatever yeah. and it's like you know it's so sad can they just keep making great small movies I'd love an Ant Man Eleven just not by the Safety Brothers right well so, I mean, let's keep those like things only, separate yeah Ant Man is the only good like the only good superhero yes. yeah I picked the wrong one you know, Iron Man Twelve or whatever there you go but uh, yeah but that's happening a lot Disney plucks these like Swedish music video directors right. to then helm Pirates of the Caribbean or something. You're like, what? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so hopefully the Safties, I want them to continue to grow. I hope that they continue to surprise me. Um, that's I know that's kind of an arrogant, ridiculous, elitist thing to say. It's not all about me. But I mean, just as an audience member, I, I hope to keep, I, I love we, them right we now. We love movies, man. Yeah, I love them right now. I want to keep loving them. And the way that I would end up becoming bored is that if they just bleed that, that style of the horse too dry sure well what do you got next for your next puzzle piece i want to do two movies right now that are they're unrelated except for that they're part of like the neo-noir genre okay and i want to just talk about neo-noir for two quick seconds it's just kind of characterized by callbacks to true noir like 40s 30s 40s 50s noir crime stories uh, usually through the cinematography like camera angles um how light is used mm -hmm. uh either through shadow uh play and things like that the framing um, and then really the biggest thing is like the, the themes of revenge and paranoia, mm -hmm. uh, and also the kind of the blurring of the lines between good and bad. Mm -hmm. These are, these are all characteristics of noir that have then been kind of reframed through near noir, which has more modern, like 1970s and up, uh, type crime stories. Uh -huh. So the films I want to mention are the friends of Eddie Coyle, uh, which is a great movie, uh, and also straight time, uh, from a director, uh, called Ulu Grab, uh, Grobar. And it was a film, kind of an underappreciated, underloved film with Dustin Hoffman. Okay. The Friends of Eddie Coyle and Straight Time are both these gritty 70s neo-noir crime stories that have this energy to them, this train. Uh, and they just kind of have um, an atmosphere that feels like the Safties. The Safties kind of have this great 70s Scorsese thing going. Sure. But I think they definitely appreciate the gems of like the seventies crime film. Yeah. And how that was kind of definitely an extension of the near noir subgenre. And I think the friends of Eddie Coyle and straight time are, uh, are big and are big in that. They, they're just very influential films, but they're also like little nuggets that not a lot of people see. And it's a shame. I think that they're these, the Safis are kind of, you know, they have great taste and they really are, they pursue cinema. And so I think they definitely probably, they saw these films. Yeah. They definitely probably. They definitely probably saw these films. Yeah, definitely probably. I love that. I think you're probably definitely right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, check out Straight Time and The Friends of Eddie Coyle because they're both great, kind of off the wall, a little bit more edgy, independent. No, I mean, not quite independent, but lower budgeted uh, crime films from that era. Awesome. Well, uh, I only got one more puzzle piece. So uh, for my last one, uh, you know, there, there's a certain kind of movie fan who is going to go into this has no idea what the Safdie brothers are of good time or any of these movies, especially the ones you're bringing up, you know, <laughs> that, you know, and, and maybe just see, Oh, it's an Adam Sandler movie. And, uh, 
you know, they, they get, you know, sure. have that level of expertise or whatever and are going to go into it and maybe uh, describe it to their friends as like an Adam Sandler crank movie. <laughs> so I thought of yes. crank, just a, uh, just a very silly balls to the wall, nonstop, uh, just crazy ass movie, you know, just nonstop adrenaline yeah. from beginning to end. And of course the, the, the one thing that a lot of people take away from this movie is just how anxiety ridden it is. And you know, you, you really do feel a little bit sick by the time it's over, you know? And I, I certainly felt that a hundred percent. I, my stomach hurt for hours after I saw this movie. It's like true serious anxiety by the end of this thing, you know? And, uh, while as crank is, does not give you those kind of feelings. It certainly, uh, it certainly has that kind of level of, of nonstop craziness that you would think, uh, is the way that someone might describe that if they haven't seen these kinds of other movies. You know what I mean? Right. Well, this is the one where his heart's going to explode unless he fights people. Right. right. It, that... it, it, some, something along those lines. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I remember there's a, there's a crank too. There is a crank too. Yeah. Because yeah. the first crank was so successful. Yes. It just tells you what the, what the marketplace is <laughs> for, for movies. Um, but yeah, no, no. I, I mean, of course. I think the adrenaline uh, is a huge part of their their thing yeah that they, they've really made that like their palette yeah is the is the intensity of their films and i actually have a couple more um uh puzzle pieces that kind of go along with that sure um because i have a couple uh i have a lot more puzzle pieces so i'll condense them sure uh, that's you want to just focus on energy right now are you going off crank let's go off energy yeah go off crank okay yes. that's a good launching pad so the first one is the work of gaspar noe I'm going to have to say Irreversible and Enter the Void. Sure. Now, Irreversible is one of the most challenging, stress-inducing films I've ever seen in my life. I actually thought of Irreversible when I was first making my pieces list. and you I take did it not, off? I did not include I just forgot to include it, but I, it was on my mind, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think... The energy and the intensity and yeah. the nausea that that the, you know the I mean Noe is that that's his thing. You know, yeah. He's really I think he's a fearless director. I used yeah. to think I used to kind of like not like him too much. I used to think he was kind of trying too that's hard. That's what he wants. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> he kind of has this um, Lars von Trier element to him, which is I feel like the more you want me to care, the less I care. You know right. what I mean? It's, and you know Lars von Trier is a little hit and miss for me. But I think I've really come to appreciate. Uh, uh, Noe, I th- a lot. I've I've really come around. I think that he is a, an artist. Yeah, and uh, that he experiments, and that not all experiments work, of course. He, but he's a laboratory filmmaker. You know, he yeah. tries things. But I really have ended up appreciating all of his films. And Irreversible has always stuck with me. I think it's a great film. And by great, I mean it. It, it succeeds where it wants to succeed. Right. Right. It's very hard to call it great in the traditional sense because it is so savage. Yeah. Uh, but it really is um, a, a powerful film. And I'd say uh, Enter the Void only because I think that the Safdies have this kind of modern, neon, oversaturated vibe. Uncut Gems less so than Good Time. Yeah. Good Time is so saturated in neon colors and things. Plus the scores that they uh, oh, use. Oh, this 80s, yeah. Yeah, big yeah. new age electronica thing. Yeah, it's yeah. very John Carpenter. Yeah. I was going to even mention John Carpenter. I forgot that on the list, but the music of John Carpenter yeah. is very influential. Kind of like that started with... Uh, 
then um it follows remember sure. when it follows came out and had that score and i was oh, like yeah. oh this is so carpenter you know yeah. so they even have that vibe going but yeah i think enter the void is very abstract it's about a drug dealer that then kind of becomes a ghost i guess that's the easiest way to describe <laughs> that film not the easiest movie to summarize uh but anyway so yeah there's there's definitely a no we vibe to them the, the, the grittiness the rawness the intensity and also this kind of like modern neon drenched overly saturated grainy high grain imagery sure so that's big into that uh the other thing i'm going to talk about in terms of intensity this was technically my last puzzle piece but then i'm going to bump it up is breaking bad okay the reason why i'm going to bring up breaking bad and just super briefly is because the early the middle sections of that show like seasons three and four Mm -hmm. are a masterpiece of intense crime storytelling of plot it's not the most sophisticated show in the world. I have my gripes about the end of Breaking Bad. Sure. You know, it's a great show overall, but I have my issues with it. But those middle seasons are the most taut television I've ever seen. I mean, to sweat down the back of my ass intense. You That's know? why everybody loves it so damn much. Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you really look at it closely, I think it falls apart under intense scrutiny. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, no, it's no Sopranos. You know what I mean, it's not nearly the heft or the intelligence of a show like Sopranos. But it is very good. Where what it does, it does extremely well. It's basically plot. It's like a high octane Quentin Tarantino movie for five years or right. whatever, and it's fairly simplistic. But those middle seasons are superb in terms of their craftsmanship and their execution, and they are extremely intense. And so I think that that's I think the reason why I want to bring up Breaking Bad. I don't know if the Safis watched it or are personally influenced by it, but I think it it gave us as a public an appetite for the Safdie's films. Mm, that's interesting. I think it conditioned us to need the adrenaline. Yeah. And the, you know, cut to black when Walt does something crazy and you know, it's two in the morning, you have to be up at work at seven. You're like, I'll do one more episode. Right. Yeah, that there was an appetite that I think Breaking Bad started. And I think the Safdies, in their more art house indie movie way, are filling that void that's left by a show that was so competently done uh, in terms of its intensity. That's really interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah, because uh, it definitely it, it it captured everybody in a way. It's just like, oh my god, what's gonna happen? You know. <laughs> and so yeah, I, I like that a lot. Thank you. Now I think you're out, right? I'm out. So you're out. We're, no, we're... I'm just gonna do. I'm just gonna mention a few quick films okay. and and just talk super briefly about them. I think it'd be a tragedy if I didn't m- uh, mention the work of John Cassavetes. Okay. Uh, there's an excellent filmmaker named John Cassavetes who was also an actor. He did a lot of a- movies uh, as an actor, like Rosemary's Baby. He's the husband guy uh, to help finance his films. A uh, film in particular is The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Uh, this is an excellent film. I, one of my all-time favorite John Cassavetes films. It is essentially art crime. It is an art house crime film. It was kind of the first of its kind. Uh, John Cassavetes... Uh, was a pioneer in a lot of ways. He invented American independent cinema with a film called Shadows, which mm. then went and turned into French New Wave cinema. So Jean-Luc Goddard, there wouldn't be a Jean-Luc Goddard without a John Cassavetes. Mm. And when I look at The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, the grittiness, the art crime element, I think that um, the Safdies are more than influenced by him. Another film to mention uh, starring John Cassavetes, but not directed by him, is a movie called Mikey and Nicky. And this is, again, a character piece, and an intense film, um, an art crime film directed by Elaine May, the great underappreciated female director, Elaine May. She's an absolute genius. Uh, and then the last two movies I want to talk about, uh, just super briefly, is an Italian film called The Moment of Truth. And this is a film, an Italian film from 1965 about a bullfighter. Uh, and it basically has a documentary realism uh, that I think that has deeply influenced the Safdie's approach. I 
think they mentioned this on that interview I was listening to. Boom. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. So the moment of truth. Something about a bullfighter. It's a bull. It's a great movie. It's, I mean, I can, again, it's an obscure film to a certain extent, but it drips out of them. You yeah. Know, it drips out of them. There's a documentary realism that I think has permeated all of their work. And the final thing I will say is kind of a weird thing. It's called The American Friend, a great movie by Wim Wenders, which is an adaptation of Ripley's Game, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's to me, it's about uh, the characters and their drive and their intentions and their ideas, their ideas propelling an unconventional plot. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these movies, uh, they're unconventional in a lot of ways. And I think, again, kind of touching on what I mentioned about when you instill a character with obsession as their driving force, you can add a lot of surprise and a lot yeah. of, uh, you know, um, unpredictability. Um, and these guys, what, they, what they're proving to me in, in three movies I've seen of theirs is that they walk that balance of inevitability and yet totally surprising, completely unexpected. I mean, and to say, just to kind of reiterate, to have unexpected inevitability is a real trick. And sure. that's where, like, these are guys are not flash in the pan. They are very talented. They are methodical, even though their films feel, like, haphazard and crazy and madness. And that was one of the things about a, a filmmaker like... Um, Rainer Werner Fassbender, a great German director, he would make movies in 11 days. He yeah. died, he, he made over 42 films and died at 38. Right. Right? Totally insane guy, but he was a stylist and there was vision. And I think these guys have that same energy and that same vision and that same drive. So yeah, I'm pretty floored by him. So those are all my puzzle pieces. I rushed through. Hey, we, we got a lot here. Let's do the finished puzzle and we'll get to any closing thoughts. Um, finished puzzle. Got a lot of movies to mention here. <laughs> We've got Punch Drunk Love, Hard Eight, Requiem for a Dream, The Wrestler, Mother, Raging Bull, Casino, The King of Comedy, The Wolf of Wall Street, California Split, The Player, Boiler Room, Pickpocket, A Man Escaped, L'Argent, am I saying that right? L'Argent. L'Argent. (laughs) 2001, A Space Odyssey, Owning Mahoney, Love and Death on Long Island, Rounders, Naked, the Safety's own uncut gems, or I mean, uh, the Safety's own uh, good time and heaven knows what. The friends of Eddie Coyle, Straight Time, Crank, Irreversible, Enter the Void, Breaking Bad, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Mikey and Nikki, The Moment of Truth, and The American Friend. Friend. Damn, man. Big list of puzzle pieces, but you know, you said it earlier, uh, th- these are cinema fans, these guys. Yeah. I mean, they really do. They really do seem to care about this stuff quite a lot, and I think that they're going to be doing a lot of really exciting stuff in the years to come. Well, the to me, again, I, not to sound like on my high horse or my soapbox, but this is something that plagues me that I worry about as a filmmaker. I'm a big film buff. I love movies. They're all I think about. I want to make sure that I'm putting out a genuine, authentic film of my own that doesn't just give you a tour of my movie collection right you know that's the thing is a lot of thing that irritates me about great people i think are great very talented is that i think they can't overcome their their influences and they wear them too much on their sleeve and the safties while i think i'm a fairly trained eye i can see some of these influences but they never dominate right their vision is sincere and that's what makes me most excited about them is yeah i could look at that good time and go yeah mean streets and this kind of glib superficial way right but it's its own thing and good time is its own movie Absolutely. and uncut gems is, is also its own film so as much as i ha- i came with a laundry list of movies but never once that i feel they overwhelmed their own personal vision and their sincerity and that's what keeps me most excited about their next movie they also um you know my, my last thought is that they give these actors so much to work with um mm-hmm. adam sandler i mean just 
freaking phenomenal performance character you know so much exciting stuff to do uh julia fox is amazing oh yeah breakout oh my god so good Um, yeah everybody in this like i said kevin garnett uh uh, adina menzel uh everybody in this is so damn good but then you could say that about good time you could say that about heaven knows what i mean they're really giving these actors such great stuff to work with to to make some really exciting performances and that's part of why i absolutely am on board for whatever they do next yeah that's the thing is so many directors uh and you know filmmakers they really undervalue actors they view them as as the as the obstacle or the enemy um and i think that's a bad attitude you sure know what i mean i feel like the safties while having very much a strong style are very much actors directors i mean they have the last two great performances Robert, i mean robert pattinson was mm-hmm. transformative oh yeah in, in that role um as connie right connie yeah. Wow. I mean, that was, to me, that that was a De Niro of our generation type performance. It was insane. As much as I love Adam Sandler in this, and I think he was brilliant, that performance as Connie is even more compelling to me. Yeah. I mean, just the, in the eyes of Robert Pattinson blew me away. Yeah. So yeah, they are actors, directors, without, without a doubt in my mind. And just super briefly, I'm reading a book right now um, called Stanley Kubrick, Director. Shocking. I'm reading a book about it. And, uh, but the, the, it's worth mentioning. A big misconception about him is that he was such an exacting perfectionist that everything was planned when he got to the set. And that's mm. the thing is that's not true at all. Stanley had no idea what he was going to shoot when he got there. And he only, and that's the, one of the reasons why he made people do so many takes is because he was solving the problem of the movie visually based on the performance. He said, you know, he said, don't give me 50% on your rehearsal, G- do it how you're going to do it. Yeah. And he'd see how they were going to do it. And then he designed the movie around the performance. He was very big into this thing called the moment. Every moment, every scene, every film, you know, every scene of every film had to have a moment, which was like, why is the audience watching this particular piece? Yeah. And that came mainly from the actor's performance. And yes, that is a technique that brings a lot out of the actor. You, know, you have to do, you, know, you have to give 110%, 130 takes. That's yeah. brutal. Sure. But his films stand the test of time or, or magic. So what I think is like appreciate your actor, and I just thought it was an interesting tidbit. You know, also for young aspiring filmmakers out there who are like, oh, you know, I have to have everything figured out. Right. No, no. Find your technique and find your way of doing it. And look at the Safties give me a lot of hope as an independent film director, getting ready to make my first feature film at a high level. It's exciting, and I, I have hope that there is people that want to see these films and companies that appreciate these voices. Uh, that they could exist. Well, this was uh, A24's biggest hit to date, I believe, yeah, as far well, as box office is concerned. So that's pretty exciting. I mean, of course, it's got a big name draw, but still. I sure. Mean, and it has Netflix involved, right? Uh, yeah, I think the international release is being handled by them or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. Probably because of Adam, because he's like locked in tight yeah. on Netflix. Yeah. He's, but they batten down that hatch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Fucking Netflix work their way into this conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course. Well, I'm going to make one last horrible joke. Okay. But out of this film, I have to say that Adam was a cut gem. That's a deep Jewish joke right there. I like it. There you go. I see where you're going. He with was it. a cut gem. I'm not going to explain it, but okay. You know, you know what I'm saying. I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I like it. Were, were you, did you just come up with that, or did you have that literally oh, written no. on your notes? No, no, no. I wrote that okay. many Good. moons ago Good. when I first saw the trailer. Beautiful. I was like, oh, it's, I'm going to make a circumcised cock one, joke. One day. So fast. <laughs> as soon as I can. <laughs> well, Chris, uh, <laughs> did you see any other movies recently you'd like to recommend? 
yeah, I actually saw Dark Waters, uh, oh. which wasn't like a masterpiece, but it was good. I wanted to see it so bad, I just couldn't find time. I yeah. gotta still try to see that. It was uh, it was very good. Um, I'm interested in those kind of films. Like even though even if they suffer as films, I'm so interested in the, the real life story that I I tend to forgive it a bit. Did you go home and throw out your uh, nonstick pans? Yes, I sold all of my shares okay. in uh, in that company in that um what was it uh in Dupont. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, oh, you're gonna laugh at this. I just pulled up my list of movies that I've seen in theaters. Uh huh. And I guess I must have been drunk or tired or something because instead of writing uncut gems, I just wrote Adam Sandler. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, Honey Boy. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was actually surprisingly good. Very good. Very interesting. I was blown away by uh, Ford v. Ferrari, mm-hmm. even though I was not expecting to be blown away. I think one of the reasons, I think the thing for me is it was a trite, boring script, but it had great performances. And what they needed to knock my socks off was the racing sequences, and they did. Yeah. The racing scenes, I think, were cinematic. And that's the beauty of movies is like that you can't do anything. You can't do that with any other art form, and they sure. really made it. So to me, that was like a movie movie. It is a movie movie. That's it what was, it yeah. is. And it was great to see in theaters. Hell yeah. Well, uh, Chris, why don't you tell people where they can find your work? So you can uh, go to chriscranock.com, and you can see all of the stuff uh, that I've made. Uh, read stuff about my upcoming film, Madam X. You can also go to madamxmovie.com and get updates and see our amazing cast and crew. Uh, we're still finding cast right now and trying to put this bad boy together. Uh, and then, yeah, I'm just on the social media under my name, of course, and you can see all my posts and rants about movies that I'm seeing and watching and all that kind of good stuff. I'm still watching the BBC list from this nice. past decade, so you guys can follow along with that. And yeah, so hopefully you just keep an eye out and hopefully I have a movie coming your way pretty soon. Beautiful. Thanks, as always, for being here, man. Thank you for having me. I always appreciate it. <laughs> Hey, I'm Josh Bell. I'm Jason Harris. Hey, Josh, we're friends in real life, but we're also co-hosts on this new podcast called Awesome Movie Year, where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies and do a deep dive looking at movies, including the best picture winner, the biggest movie at the box office, future cult classics, and more. Including the biggest flop. And this season, we're doing 1994. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. That could be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We're all over the web as well. at Awesome Movie Year on all the socials and awesomemovieyear.com. So please like us, subscribe. And uh, if you do like us, give us a five-star rating because we love you. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation about Uncut Gems. Thank you, Chris Cranock, for being here as always. Always love having Chris on the show. Uh, and that was just a ad for awesome movie year which by the way comes back with its season three on the films of 1989 this week so make sure to check that out also coming up next week is the premiere of a new podcast that i am producing called all rice no beans right here on the all points west podcast network and uh, i'm really excited about that one it is uh it's a podcast about restaurants and restaurant owners Stephanie Barajas, the uh, general manager of Lindo Michoacan, a Mexican restaurant here in Las Vegas, will be interviewing her father about his story and his experiences building the Lindo Michoacan name from the ground up, while also talking to other restaurant owners about their experiences and how all of these uh, experiences come together and tips and stuff like that for people getting into the restaurant business. It's a really interesting show and totally different from anything I've done before, but uh, I think it's going to be great. I think a lot of people are really going to love it. You can check out All Rice, No Bean, 
means anywhere you listen to this podcast or awesome movie or for that matter. And uh, I'm, again, just really excited about it getting out there. I do hope you all check it out. Uh, it's coming out on January 6th, this coming Monday. So make sure to check out All Rice, Snow Beans. And we will, of course, be back with plenty more piecing it together next week as well. We, uh, we've got an episode on the top 10 movies of the decade. And then we also have regular episodes coming up too, and more special episodes, and just lots of other stuff for us to cover. So lots more piecing it together coming your way. If you do enjoy piecing it together, we really hope you're subscribed wherever it is you listen. And you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and on Podchaser. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And if you'd ever like to be on an episode of Piecing It Together, get in touch with me. I'm always looking for new co-hosts for the show. So uh, with that said, I think we can close this episode out with a piece of music like we always do. And I think for a movie like Uncut Gems with such a uh, frantic pace as Adam Sandler is racing around the city doing the shit he's doing, getting into everything, uh, we should play a a nice, fast, upbeat, frantic kind of track. And I don't know if I've ever played this one before on the show, so perfect time to play it. This is a track called Whirlwind from my first album, Echoes in the Dark. So enjoy Whirlwind, and uh, we'll be back. More Piecing It Together coming out real soon.
and All Points West. <laughs>